In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10, the Bible says this, You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I've chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. There are somewhere around 8.7 million people worldwide who identify themselves as the witnesses described there in Isaiah 43, verse 10. In fact, they call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses. You may have encountered them before. This is a religious group that began in about 1852. It was founded by a man named Charles Taze Russell. And since that time, it has grown and it, it has spread from America all across the world. Like I said, there's about 8.7 million people who uh, are part of this group. About 1% of adults on average in each state of the U.S. are Jehovah's Witnesses. You may have encountered them before. Likely you have neighbors, co-workers, or patrons of your business who are Jehovah's Witnesses. If you haven't encountered them then, maybe they've come knocking on your doorstep at an inconvenient time one Saturday morning wanting to talk to you about what they have to say. We have often encountered them, and yet sometimes we shy away from talking to them because we've heard this or that about what they believe or they began talking and they started saying strange things and we thought, I just don't have time to deal with that. And so we, uh, we look for how we can get out of that situation. But I want to encourage us in this lesson this morning to start thinking differently about this situation. Here we have an opportunity, literally knocking on our doorstep sometimes, to share the gospel with some people who truly need it. These are people who have a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel, often because this is the only thing they've ever heard in their whole life. And they are in desperate need of someone who not only knows the truth of the gospel, but also has the compassion to share it with them. And so I want to spend some time talking this morning about how to witness to the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, I've been interacting with them over the course of about a month or so recently, and I have had one month to read and read and really get to know what they teach. I'm not expecting you to have that level of knowledge from just one lesson for me. I'm still trying to wrap my head around everything that they believe. But I hope that at least in giving an overview of what they believe and also some things you can share with them that you'll be inspired to dig a little deeper, study a little more on your own, and really get to know the gospel and be prepared to share it with them when the opportunity comes up. These are folks who spend maybe five hours preparing to talk to you. Uh, pioneer ministers, which is one rank in their organization, 
spend an average of 30 hours a week going door to door. So they've done their, their prep work to talk to you. How are you going to prepare to talk to them? So I hope that this sermon will help encourage and motivate you in that regard. This is going to be a little different from your typical Sunday morning lesson. And I understand people may get concerned because we're going to spend a lot of time talking about things that are incorrect about God and Jesus and the gospel. And I want to assure you that the gospel is coming at the end of the lesson when we talk about what you're going to share with them. But I want to give you an overview of some things they teach and they may say to you so that you're not caught off guard and confused when they begin to say some of these things. I've done my best to try to succinctly summarize this, and I apologize if I've gotten it wrong. I've tried to quote sources and to be accurate and not misrepresent what they believe. But I also want to put a little note there at the beginning of this. You do need to understand that the witnesses are having to deal with some doctrinal issues for two primary reasons. First of all, much of what they believe centers around a prophecy about 1914. And we're getting farther and farther away from 1914 every day. And so they're having to find extra room in there in their prophecy. And so they're sort of reinterpreting some of their doctrine. Second of all, the internet is making it very difficult for their organization to control the flow of negative information about them. And so they're going through a period of doctrinal change. But let's talk about, first of all, some things that they believe. First of all, they believe Jehovah is the only true God. The Jehovah's Witnesses are monotheists, just like we are. They believe there's one God, but they are Unitarians, meaning they don't believe in the Trinity. And that's demonstrated in the next few points. They believe that Michael the Archangel is Jehovah's first and only creation. So when you're reading in Genesis 1, somewhere before that, God made Michael the Archangel. And through Michael, he created all other things. Michael's a very important figure in their theology because third, Michael the Archangel became Jesus, according to them. They say Michael the archangel existed for a period of time in heaven, there with God, and then Michael ceased to exist, and the man Jesus was born on the earth. They believe many of the same things we do about Jesus and his ministry and his life here on the earth, but Fourth, they believe Jesus didn't die on a cross. They say he died on what they called the torture stake. They believe he was nailed vertically to a post, and that's how he died. This comes from a misunderstanding about the Greek word cross, but they believe this, and they might say this to try to throw you off guard. Frequently, they will bring up strange things which they know that you don't believe. And they'll try to cast doubt in your mind. You've thought this whole time 
Jesus was crucified on a cross, but actually it was a stake. In fact, the cross is a pagan symbol. And they get you thinking, man, what else have I been told that I just believed and I took it for granted? This is how they try to throw you off guard. So they believe Jesus died on what they say is the torture stake, and Jesus was not bodily resurrected. In their teaching, Jesus was buried in the tomb, and God disintegrated the body. That's why when the disciples came, they didn't find him there. God disintegrated the body. And when Jesus was resurrected, he was resurrected with a spirit body. He was remade, resurrected as Michael the archangel once again. Now, this is a very tricky concept. In fact, if you ask them what is a spirit body, they'll probably have trouble explaining it to you. They don't believe in the concept of a soul as we understand it. So it's not that Michael's spirit was put into the body of Jesus and then it came back out again. But as I've kind of drawn up here, they believe Michael the archangel existed for a time in heaven. And at the exact point Jesus came into existence, Michael ceased to exist. Then Jesus lived here on the earth. And then when he died and his body disappeared, disintegrated, Michael came into existence once again. Although not the same Michael is here, they believe Michael was recreated according to God's memory of him. In fact, they say the same thing will happen to you in the resurrection. Your physical body dies, it ceases to be, it disintegrates, and in the resurrection you will be recreated in a spirit body that is you, but it's not really you. There's a broken connection there. And so you can see what they're teaching here. They are teaching there was no physical resurrection for Jesus. Let me quote from their own writings. This is Studies in the Scriptures, which they think is authoritative. Volume 5, page 454. The man Jesus is dead, forever dead. There was no physical resurrection for Jesus. And so you can see they don't believe that Jesus is God. They don't believe he's deity. They don't believe in the Trinity. He is dead forevermore. Resurrected, they say, is Michael, but it's, it's really not what's going on. I can give you lots of scriptures that refute this, of course. Hebrews 1 totally refutes the idea that Jesus is an angel. Colossians 1 says that through Jesus, everything was made that was made. That's pretty exclusive. Pretty clear Jesus wasn't made. John 1 says, apart from, thing, apart from Jesus, nothing was made that was made. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Jesus resurrected from the dead, and that's the basis of our hopes. And all the resurrection accounts show Jesus had a body. The same body that he died in was resurrected, and he could show those nail-scarred hands to the disciples. So you can see already there's major issues here with their doctrine. Let's keep going. They believe the Holy Spirit is a force 
not a person. They would liken the Holy Spirit to electricity or rushing water, you know, that can push a turbine, generate power. It's a force, but they talk about the Holy Spirit as an it and not a he. They believe Jesus has already returned to earth. The second coming's already happened. It happened in 1914. And back in the day, they were predicting that Armageddon was at hand in 1914. Now, they were pretty excited when World War I began in 1914. The problem is it ended in 1918 and the world still wasn't over. So they had to amend some of that prophecy about the end. And they said, well, Jesus did come back in 1914, but he came invisibly. Nobody saw it happen. And he's still here. He's reigning through the leadership of their organization. It's just nobody sees it. Well, Matthew 24, verses 25 and 26, Jesus said specifically, I've told you in advance, if somebody says, behold, he's in the wilderness or he's in some interior room somewhere, do not go out because the coming of the Son of Man will be like lightning in the sky. And I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> the Jehovah's Witnesses have four requirements for salvation. In fact, here's what they say about Jesus's sacrifice this is from Studies in the Scriptures, Volume 1, page 150. The ransom for all given by the man Christ Jesus does not give nor guarantee life or blessing to any man. They said Jesus' sacrifice is not enough for salvation. In fact, they have four things that are required for salvation. First, they say, Take in knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. And that sounds pretty good, but what they mean is take in their knowledge that Jesus is a created being whose body dissolved in the grave and didn't physically rise. Second, they say you got to obey God's laws. It's a very works-based salvation. If you get to the end of your life and you've obeyed well enough, then you'll be saved. Third, you have to belong to their organization. You have to be a Jehovah's Witness. And if you're not part of their number, you don't have salvation. Fourth, they really emphasize loyalty. Loyalty to the Watchtower Society. And that means you go out and you hand out their tracts and their material. This is why Jehovah's Witnesses go door to door. It's not so much they're trying to convert you as it's a requirement for their own salvation. They have to do what's called promoting the watchtower at least one hour a month to be considered a member in good standing. And if you're not a member in good standing, when Armageddon comes and they think that's very close, you're going to suffer as a result. You're going to be outside of God's people. Now, you may have noticed in talking to them before or heard this, they have their own Bible translation. It's called the New World Translation or the NWT. And they'll claim that the Bible is their sole source of authority 
The thing is, they have their own Bible, which they say is it. And they believe all other translations are corrupted. You'll notice when you start looking at this New World Translation, first of all, the committee that created it is anonymous. Nobody knows who made this translation. They have not disclosed that information. But they certainly did not know Hebrew and Greek because there are a number of very egregious mistranslations. And you'll notice as you start looking, the vast majority of this, these mistranslations occur in passages which support biblical Christianity over their doctrines. Passages that talk about Jesus being God and things like that. This can make it very difficult to interact with them because Jehovah's Witnesses are taught to trust their translation and to mistrust anything that isn't published by what's called their governing body. Let's talk about the governing body. The governing body is their ultimate source of authority. They claim their authorities built on the Bible, but you can only use their Bible, which was put out by the governing body. You see, Jehovah's Witnesses is more than just a name for this group of people who share some beliefs. It's an actual organization, and they have a head. They have a board of directors called the governing body. These are eight men in New York who, according to them, formulate their doctrine, oversee publishing of their materials, and they say when judgment comes, you will have to trust in these eight men and follow their instructions in order to be saved from Armageddon. They get this from Luke 12, 42. Jesus taught a parable in Luke 12, 42. It says, and the Lord said, who then is the faithful and prudent servant, uh, steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? And they identify their governing body as what they call the faithful and discreet slave, which Jesus has appointed to oversee the rest of his followers. JW.org on November 10th, 2012, says this, the faithful and discreet slave, that's their name for their governing body, was appointed over Jesus's domestics, they mean their church, in 1919. The slave is a small group composed of anointed brothers serving at world headquarters who directly involve, who are directly involved in preparing and dispensing spiritual food. Now, this doctrine has evolved over time. It didn't always exist. Back in the day, closer to 1919, all Jehovah's Witnesses were this faithful and discreet slave which Jesus has appointed to teach everybody else. But eventually, it evolved to just their leadership, and then it evolved to just these, this ruling body in New York. And they say, you must depend on these men and follow their instructions in order to be saved, essentially. 
Now, maybe you've heard about the 144,000 who are the only ones who will be saved and go to heaven. They get that idea from the book of Revelation, chapter 7 and 14. They believe the 144,000 are people God has especially selected to be rulers and to be priests over the, the normal Jehovah's Witnesses. They say there can only be 144,000 and God has selected all of them in the time from Pentecost until now. In fact, in 1935, God stopped selecting these special people. These are the ones who will, who will rule and reign with Jesus in his earthly kingdom when he comes back and he sets up a kingdom. Furthermore, they're the only people whom God has made the new covenant with. In fact... If you go to their, uh, their yearly communion service, you'll sit there, as I did just a couple weeks ago, and you'll watch as they pass the bread and the fruit of the vine around, and nobody partakes unless you are one of the anointed. They say you'll know because the Spirit changes your eternal destiny from earth to heaven. And so you just know and this is actually how they keep track of who is anointed. They watch as the ceremony's going on and they take note of who partakes of the Lord's Supper. Everybody else, the rest of the Jehovah's Witnesses, are what's called the great crowd. And they will be saved, but they don't go to heaven like the 144,000. Instead, they are resurrected in earthly bodies, much like this one, to live on a paradise earth that's been refurbished. So the 144K, they're up in heaven with God. The rest of us, we live on a new earth. And they say everybody else will be annihilated. You don't suffer eternally in hell. You simply cease to exist. I think that's enough for now. We've really opened the fire hose, haven't we? But you can see when it comes to evangelizing and talking to Jehovah's Witnesses, communication is going to be an issue because there are fundamental doctrinal differences between you. And you, they use a lot of the same terms. When you're talking about God, you don't have the same understanding of who God is. When you're talking about Jesus, you don't have the same understanding about who He is. When you talk about salvation, or heaven, or the church, or any of these things, you're going to be talking past each other, most likely. And so you've got to watch out for that. Understand, most Jehovah's Witnesses have either been born and raised in this group, or they've been converted from another religious group before they really had a chance to learn the fundamentals of Christianity. And so their whole worldview is shaped by Jehovah's Witness doctrine. So you've got to be patient when you communicate with them. I've read some testimony from ex-Jehovah's Witnesses, and they say it takes years to unscramble all these complex things that they have been told are the truth for years. So there's certainly some doctrinal issues when you're going to talk to them, but there's also sociological problems because Jehovah's Witnesses are essentially a cult. 
Now, that's not a term I use lightly, and it's a term a lot of people throw out and try to make it mean whatever they want it to mean. Some people say all religions are cults. But what I mean by this is the Jehovah's Witnesses are an insulated social group whose leadership says the only way you can understand the Bible is through our guidance. And the whole organization is structured to promote this. If you're a Jehovah's Witness, your entire social circle is other Jehovah's Witnesses. They get suspicious if you have friends outside of their number. There are many rules and guidelines about how to live your life that don't come from the Bible. They come from the ruling body, and you must conform to them. They're told, do not Google Jehovah's Witnesses. Don't even type it in the search engine. If you need to do research, go to our website. Read our materials. And so they exist in a social and a doctrinal thought bubble. The Watchtower Society is extremely controlling and restrictive. They're being told when Armageddon comes, and it comes soon, if you want to survive, you've got to listen to those eight guys in New York or you're going to perish. And that's really emphasized and hammered home with them. And if you ever leave the Jehovah's Witnesses, they will practice what's called shunning. That means your friends and your family are allowed never to speak with you or to have association with you. So there's a lot of obstacles here. How can we overcome this extreme level of control when we're talking to our Jehovah's Witness neighbors? Let me give you five points real quick about how to effectively evangelize to Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm sorry I didn't have room for this on the board but I'll be happy to share it with you again after services if you don't get it. First of all, have a heart of compassion. The average Jehovah's Witness is not in a position where they're perpetuating this group. They are stuck in it. They're being lied to about Christ. So when you see them walking up to your door at an inconvenient time on Saturday morning and you're just trying to relax, don't be thinking of what clever and smug comment you're going to make and then slam the door in their face and, and tell them off. We need to have an attitude of compassion and love for these people. Second of all, focus on learning one truth. You're not going to remember all of this. I don't hardly remember all of it. I had to write it down. And there's so many points of doctrine which are twisted. If you try to talk about the New World Translation, the 144,000 and the deity of Christ and birthdays and blood transfusions and false prophecies and Charles Taze Russell's 1939, uh, 1913 court case, you're going to try to talk about everything and you're really going to say nothing. You're not going to make any substantial progress whatsoever. So pick one thing, one truth, and learn it very well. Focus on hitting that down. Third, you need to control the conversation when you talk to them. They've spent five hours preparing to talk to you. They know all about what they want to say. And when you bring up a separate issue, they're going to want to 
redirect your attention somewhere else. But you need to hang on politely, but firmly. Ask, hey, can we just, can we focus on talk about this here? This is important. This particular passage or scripture is significant. Stick to one scripture, one topic, and really focus on that. To that end, fourth, you need to memorize scripture. They've spent time memorizing scripture, although they haven't spent time studying what it really means. But when you've got that short window of opportunity on your doorstep or out in public, you don't have time to be turning to the 29th book of the New Testament, the concordance, to find out that verse that you want to bring up with them. You need to have the word in your heart. You need to know your Bible. You need to have studied what you believe. And guess what? You're going to shock them. Because they spend so much time going door to door, talking to Christians who don't know anything about what they believe. When they find someone who knows their Bible, they're going to fall out of their seat. Trust me, that's been my experience in talking to them. They can hardly believe it. Fifth, you need to use their literature. They've been trained. Anything that is not published by the Watchtower is apostate literature. Literally, they think it is lies from Satan. There's almost a superstition against touching tracts or other printed material that isn't from them. And so when it comes down to your word or the Watchtower's word, they're going to be inclined to believe what they've been taught the whole time. But I'll tell you what, there is one thing a Jehovah's Witness will take with them when they leave 100% of the time. They're going to take their Bible. I've never seen them leave and leave their New World Translation behind. So if you can learn to use their material and reference it, and show how it contradicts, you're going to be successful in talking to them. Now, this is super easy because they've got a website, jw.org, and they have a free app of the same name where you can look at their Bible, you can look at all their articles, and you can pull them up right then and there, and you can show them, hey, you say this, but this contradicts that. Hopefully, if you can cast doubt on just one truth and really impress upon them just one contradiction between what the Watchtower says and what the Bible says, that may be the crack in the glass which shatters the mirror and leads them to think, the Watchtower lied to me about this. What else are they lying about? And hopefully they'll go and they'll study for themselves. Now, let's talk about the gospel. Let's talk about what you're going to share with them really quickly. There's a lot of points that you might choose. You could go into false prophecy. You could go into various doctrinal teachings. But here's what I'm going to suggest you talk about. You need to talk about the deity of Christ. Now, you need to have a strategy in approaching this because if you go to John 1.1, let me tell you, they know John 1 and 1 like the back of their hand. 
They have had what they're going to say about John 1.1 memorized since childhood. They may not understand anything about Greek or Hebrew, but those very obvious passages which we think of that prove Jesus is God, they know about and they've been trained on. I wish John 1.1 could just be the end of it. Jesus is God, but it's not quite that simple. They know about Titus 2.13. They know about 2 Peter 1.1. They know about Romans 9.5. So you want to take a different angle. You want to come from a side where they're, they're not expecting you to talk about. And so they really have to stop and think about what you're saying. So we're going to talk about the Trinity. That's what I recommend. Now, what we believe about the Trinity, we may, uh, in fact, I may preach another lesson on that. So we all are on the same page at a, at a later point. But we believe there is one divine being, right? Yahweh or Jehovah. And this one divine being is expressed in three eternal and co-equal persons or entities, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Usually when we talk about God, we're thinking of God the Father, but God is also Jesus and also the Holy Spirit too. Now they might want to argue with you about Jesus, is he God, is he not God? They would probably say Jesus is a God. He's a mighty being, but he's not Jehovah. He's not Yahweh. So, if we can show them from the Bible that Jesus is Jehovah, he is Yahweh, that settles the whole matter, doesn't it? That cuts right to the heart of the issue. So that's what I'm going to look at you for this uh, look at you with for this approach. Let's start looking at Psalm 102. Verses 25 through 27. I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible, by the way, and I've chosen this translation because it represents the Tetragrammaton, that's God's name, Yahweh, in the text. Your translation may say LORD in all caps, but just know that is God's name as he has revealed it being used in the text. Now looking first at Psalm 102, 25 through 27, the Bible says, Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you will remain, and all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing you will change them, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Now, you read this with them, you can even read it out of their translation. It will say pretty much the same thing as here. And clearly this passage is talking about Yahweh, right? This is describing what makes Yahweh different from false gods. What is his nature like? What makes him unique and immutable in all creation? It says he created the heavens and the earth, right? 
And although his creation wears out, it perishes over time, he doesn't. He is everlasting. And he exercises sovereign power over his creation. He can change it at will. Just like taking off clothes, putting on different clothes. But he himself is unchanged. So you look at this, clearly this is talking about Jehovah. If you want, you can back up a little bit and look in paragraph 12, verses 12 through 16 or so, and you can see Yahweh is here. Their translation will say Jehovah. So obviously this is God. And you ask them, are these things true of anybody except Jehovah? And the answer, of course, is no. He created everything. He's everlasting. He's eternal. Only God can be described this way. Now, having looked at this here in Psalm 102, let's look at how the writer in Hebrews chapter 1 applies this quotation. Hebrews 1, you're going to want to start really at verse 5, although verses 10 through 12 are the important part. Get used to reading the whole passage so you get the context. This is talking about what makes Jesus different from angels. Starting in Hebrews 1 verse 5, it says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, that's the Father, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he, bring, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says to him, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds and his ministers flaming fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of his uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now, in their translation, it's not going to say that the Son is God, but you're just going to skip past that. Get to verses 10 through 12. You've loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning founded the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. And they all will wear out like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Now, in Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27, who was that about? It was Yahweh, Jehovah God. We come to Hebrews 1, where we are quoting from the Old Testament to make application about Jesus and who he is. Who is the Son? He founded the heavens and the earth with his hands. They will perish, but the Son will remain. Like a mantle, he can roll up creation. He can change it, but he is the same, and his years never come to an end. This is not just an exaltation of Jesus. He possesses attributes only Yahweh can possess. The things that are true about Jesus can only be true about Jehovah. 
And you point that out to them. Look at this. He possesses all those same attributes. Now, maybe they want to deny that this is quoting Psalm 102. If you look in their New World Translation at footnote S, it directly references Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. They've confessed this is about Jehovah. This is saying Jesus is like Jehovah in every aspect of his being. Now, here's decision time. Because if you were doing this with the purpose of drawing blood with your spiritual sword, this is where you stab straight at the heart, right? You press them to come up with an answer right on the spot. And I'll tell you what, they'll give you an answer. It may be the dumbest answer you've ever heard, but out of reflex, they'll come up with something. That's not what we want to do here. If you're trying to help this person come out of the Jehovah's Witnesses, as soon as this point is made, give them space. Give them a minute to really think about this. They may have never heard of this in their life, most likely. Let it sink in and say, you know, I realize you may have never heard this before. And if you need to think about this, if you don't have an answer, I understand. Then ask, can I show you another passage? They'll probably say, yes, show me another passage. Let's look at John 12, 37 through 41. These aren't in any particular order, but this is the order that I like. In John chapter 12, this is the end of Jesus's public ministry. From this point on, he will no longer be preaching to the general public. He will teach only his disciples. And John 12, 37 through 41 says this, But though he had done so many signs before them, they still were not believing in him, so that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and return, and I heal them. Now look at verse 41. Underline this. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory, and he spoke about him. Now this is a passage about Jesus. Clearly, Isaiah made this prophecy about Jesus. But where in the scripture did Isaiah see his glory and speak this about him? Look at Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. It says, In the year of King Isaiah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Now that's simply Lord Adonai. That's not God's name yet, but we keep reading and we see clearly who it is. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face and with two, he covered his feet and with two, he flew. And he called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called out while the house of God was filling with, spoke, with smoke. Now, you'll probably want to keep reading this with them through verse 10. 
Isaiah talks about he is a man of unclean lips. And the angel flies down and touches his lips with a burning coal. And then there's that wonderful passage. The Lord says, who will go for us? Whom will we send? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. We love that song, don't we? But verse 10 is where Isaiah makes this prophecy. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their, heart, their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. If you asked Isaiah who he saw in the temple that day, he would say Yahweh, wouldn't he? Obviously. You ask John, who did Isaiah see? Who did he prophesy about? John says that was Jesus. That was the son. In fact, you'll notice there in John 12, what did he say in verse 41? He said, Isaiah said, because he saw his glory and spoke about him. Isaiah saw the Lord's glory. It's interesting in Isaiah 6, verse 1, the Hebrew says he saw the Lord and the train of his robe filling the temple. But the Greek translation of Isaiah 6, which the apostles knew and read and preached from, says his glory filled the temple. Isaiah saw Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh. And guess what? The New World Translation in John 12, 41, footnote W, says Isaiah 6, verse 1 is the reference to this prophecy. We hasten on. Isaiah 44, verse 6. I just have to throw this one in there. These all come from Isaiah, by the way. I don't know if you noticed that. It makes it easy to remember. In Isaiah 44, verse 6, thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first and I am the last and there is no God besides me. What does it mean for Yahweh to be the first and the last? There's no God besides him. Where have you heard that before? We've heard that in Revelation, haven't we? Now, when I pointed this out to the Jehovah's Witnesses I was studying with, they knew, they thought they knew where I was going. They thought I was going to Revelation 1, verse 8, or chapter 22, and they began to say, well, you know, there's punctuation there, and it's unclear if God is being talked about or Jesus. I said, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about Revelation 1, verses 17 and 18. John has the vision of, one like the Son of Man. And he says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not fear. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Who is that? Who's the living one who was dead but is alive forever and ever. That's never said of the Father, but I know it's said of Jesus, his Son. And in the same sentence, he says, I am the first and the last. He's eternal, just like God. He's the beginning and the end. 
Here's one more. We read this one at the beginning of our study. In fact, this is the verse where Jehovah's Witnesses get their name. Isaiah 43, verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I've chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Now, where have you heard that? I am he. I know we're thinking of Exodus 3.14, right? I am that I am. It, that's a little bit different of a phrase there. But you've heard this phrase in the Gospels before. In Greek, this phrase is rendered, I am, ego I me. Where have you heard somebody talking about, I am this, I am that? Jesus talked about that in the Gospel of John. Look at John 13, verse 19. This is on the night in which he's betrayed. Judas has gone out. Jesus has prophesied his own betrayal. And he says, from now on, I am telling you before it occurs, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. And the he is not present in the Greek in that passage. It's inserted in English to help us understand. But in Greek it reads, so you may believe that I am. Jesus is, I am. Just as the Father is, I am. The very passage from which Jehovah's Witnesses get their name teaches the deity of Jesus. There's so much more I could present. I continue to find passages and connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament applying what is only true of Yahweh, the one and only God, is applied to Jesus. It's true of him. We didn't even talk about the Holy Spirit, but I'll tell you what, if the word of God if, if, God, if the Word can be God, the Spirit can be God, too. It doesn't take much of a stretch. But if you could just show some Jehovah's Witnesses this truth that I guarantee they have never heard in their life, if you were prepared and ready to share this with them, imagine what a difference that could make to help someone come out of a cult and to learn the truth of the gospel. They put so much emphasis on Jehovah. They even use his name superstitiously, but they know nothing about who Jehovah really is. You could be that one to share that with them. Now, you may be worried about saying the right thing. Don't worry too much about that. Read the scripture. Let the scripture speak for itself. Don't worry too much about what you'll say in the moment. Point this out to them. All these passages, you can use their own translation and it will demonstrate these truths. If you stumble, if you hit a snag, they bring something up that you think, I don't know how to answer this. Write it down. Say, I'm going to study that. I'm going to have an answer for you next time.
plant the seed. That's all we are called to do, to be ready and prepared, plant the seed, to water it, and let God give the increase. And maybe you'll be that one person who plants one tiny seed in one of your Jehovah's Witness neighbors that brings them to the gospel. I know we haven't talked much about the gospel and what to do to be saved, but it's easy to show that once you talk about this truth. Because you know over in Acts chapter 2, that first gospel sermon which was preached, what did Peter tell those people about Jesus? They said, he said, he's the Messiah whom God prophesied. He's the son of David. He's the one whom God has appointed to be all things. And in verse 36, he said, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. The true identity of Jesus, that he's deity, that he's the son of God, is the heart of the gospel message. And that, my friends, is what pricked the hearts of listeners there on Pentecost and caused them to interrupt Peter's sermon. He didn't even get to HBRCB. They interrupted him and they asked, what must we do to be saved? God has made Jesus King and Lord, and yet we have done him wrong. We've crucified him. Peter told those people who knew fully well what he was saying about Jesus and who he was. He said, repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins. That same call extends to people in all places, in all ages, in all periods of time. If you understand and believe that Jesus is the Son of God, just like we've shown as the Old Testament prophesied, and as the New Testament predicted and showed, you're ready to be baptized. You know what you need to know to become his follower, to be in good standing with God, and to learn his ways and to follow after him. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon from the Oyster Bay Church of Christ in Crawfordville, Florida. I hope you've been blessed by its message. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, or if you'd like to hear more preaching by the members of our congregation, visit our website at www.obcoc.org. I'm Hayden, and on behalf of the congregation, we wish you a blessed day.